Paula Windows and Doors of Wisconsin's wide range of beautiful wood designs can be painted, stained, or unfinished to complement any decor. Put no money down, no payment, and no interest for up to 24 months. Visit PellaWI.com. Expires 9-30-2022. Certain restrictions apply to showroom for details. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. The AccuNet Mortgage Talk and Text Line is open now. Give us a call at 855-616-1620. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show. So very glad to have you with us. Mike Spaulding, before you go, did you realize this is our last day at Radio City? Yes, I did realize it. I can't believe it's here. Yeah. Actually, knowing that we've, we've been hearing about it for quite a while. 2019 is like when the rumblings happened. Do you remember right. we had a Christmas party? Oh, oh so right. long ago. Right. A couple of years ago that was down there, right? And they were starting to talk about that, right? And that's like two and a half years ago or so. Yeah. yeah a- absolutely. Our, now, you have been down into our new space. I have. I was down there yesterday giving a little mini tour uh, to some of our part time folks who are here on the weekends that haven't been here during the week. So. Just wanted to make sure everyone knows where they're going and how to get in and all that kind of stuff. Make sure all the technology works, all that stuff. So, no, well, I was down there this morning. That was my orientation, and um, it's it, it's 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 quite nice, you know. And there, I mean, it's still it's kind of a work in proge- progress, and I think we all have to just <laughs> appreciate that, you know, because uh, those of us in the industry like to complain from time to time. And everybody's working hard. I was down there, and they they were showing me the studio, and it's it's a nice, it's a state of the art studio. But at the end of the day, I'm like, okay. These, this is what I want. How do I turn the microphone on? Show me that button. Show me the button I hit to talk to my producer. Show me how I bring callers up. And beyond that, everything else is kind of like gravy. We'll you know figure what, it all out. You know what's been interesting for me to watch is, you know, in the studio that we're in now, we've been here for quite, quite a while. And you just keep gaining things when technology changes. You know, nothing ever gets taken away. So right now in front of me, I have one, two, three, four, five computer screens right a digital cam or a webcam and like two microphones and it would when you're down there it's so clean <laughs> all right like it just everything is so it's just new and updated which is really nice right because we won't have 15 or 20 computer screens or whatever we have well right but now. at our workstations i'm going to have three computer monitors in front of me and there's going to be this big giant tv thing where you can put four different feeds on there and i think there's another two tvs mm-hmm. but i mean it's all going to come gradually but I, I thought it was that they're working extremely hard um to to get it done and stuff and i think it's going to be cool and i this is the first chance i got really to see the upstairs office the studios are down in the lower mm-hmm. floor and um it, it's 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 new it's different but i i think it'll be just absolutely fine the biggest upgrade we're going to get it's not anything that we do on our daily job it's the break room have you seen the break oh, yeah, room? It's, yeah, no, it's it, it's huge. No, it's, yes. I mean they call it a cafe, and it's it's there, there's there's plenty. Of, I, I think the thing that I thought was interesting is they have phone booths. Yeah. For and I said what, and they showed them to me. These they're like, well, if you can imagine like the old fashioned phone booths where you would like pull open this door and you would go in and the light comes on and you make your your call. Well, they don't have pay phones or anything in them, but if you want to have a private call or something, you. You, you go in, you close the door. There must have been like four or five of these phone booths that were down there. Yeah, they're pretty cool. And you can charge your phone in there. It's pretty, they're nice. It, it, it's going to give you a lot of variety. Like things aren't going to get stale, which I'm excited about. Being, It's not going to be go to the same exact studio or conference room every day. There's like a multitude of options. And I'm just looking forward to the variety. I'm looking forward to seeing like everything in. I'm very excited about my orientation this afternoon. Well, there, well, 
<laughs> Trust go in with with again. They're they're still putting the stuff in, so it's it's a work in progress. But they're they're working extremely hard, and they're and it it is kind of interesting to have input because you can say, okay, well, how are we going to do this? Oh yeah, let me put that on the list and things like that. And they're very receptive. Are you nostalgic at all about leaving this building? Uh, not not really. No, so I, I sort of am only because like I grew up in radio here, sort of. You know, I've been here for for seven years. I really kind of came into my own and got to do a lot of stuff and cool stuff in this building and meeting the people that have been on the air, whether it was you know Charlie or Gene or the people that are still here. So I, I'm a little bit nostalgic there. What I'm really going to miss is knowing everything that you learn over you know any amount of time you've been at a company like i could have someone call me now if i was at home and say i have a problem with the board i can like close my eyes right. and picture how to fix it the new place it's going right. to be new for all of us we're all going to be learning on the same page so i think more than anything i'm going to miss the familiarity but right. just seeing what it looked like when i was down there yesterday and over the weekend i don't think it's going to last too long like until right. i'm just yeah like the way the way we bring callers up and down. I, it's it's different. I mean, it's it's a similar sort of thing, but instead of having it on the board in front of me now, it's going to be on the side. And it's perfectly workable and stuff. You know, it's interesting. I thought I would be more nostalgic. I mean, I've been coming in here for, you know, going on 25 years. Yeah. And it's I, I've taken the opportunity to kind of like walk around over a couple times over the last couple weeks and just – and to me, it's it's not like memories of, oh, this happened. It's more like just the people. I, I kind of walk around. I said, yeah, I, I remember the, who used to sit at the yeah, sales desk. Yeah. And I remember, and like I said, a couple of those, many, many people have moved on. A couple have, have passed away. You know, and you just sit there and say, I, I remember when I got to work with, you know, Patty. And Patty passed away a few years ago. And that's where Marquita sat. And that's where Barb sat. And that's, we used to have more Toms that worked here. It seemed, it seemed to be a prerequisite. If, <laughs> if you were going to get hired at this place, you had to be named Tom. And I know oh, that's where Tom such and such, so, such and such sat. And like the, the offices and all, it's, it's more, that and just remembering the people, um, but I, I don't. I don't think I'm going to be wistful when I walk out of the building at 3:05 today. I don't think so either. I think part of my what's going to help me <laughs> selfishly is it cuts about 10 minutes off my commute. So <laughs> yeah, it, do- it doubles my commute. It, it doubles. doubles? My- yeah. Well, see, I, I live. I live to the north, and so part of the. It, it, who cares? It, I mean, actually, like I, when I was. My orientation was nine o'clock today. Um, I forty three going southbound is a disaster. Yes, it I mean is. it's yes. just it's a disaster. So I was coming up on Good Hope Road and traffic. Oh, so my I was supposed to be down there at nine o'clock. So I figure I'm going to be a responsible employee. I, I left at five after eight. You would think that from where I live, it, it, normally you you should be able to get downtown in like oh, sure. twenty twenty five minutes. Um, I come up to Good Hope Road. It's stop and go. I mean it's. Stop and go with an emphasis on stop. So I got off and took Lake Drive down, which is how it, which is a very nice drive down there, and got down there about eight forty. But yeah, it it, it doubles my commute. Oh, but that's yeah, okay. I'm sorry, I had to bring it up. That's okay. <laughs> that's it's kind of rough, but it's fine. But it but again, if you got the alternatives, and if you don't want to take the freeway, you take Lake Drive. It's a nice drive there. Well, hopefully, I will see you couple more times before the show ends today and then we'll be in our new day tomorrow i got my training here at two o'clock but i'll be in a couple more times before then sounds like a plan when we come back ron johnson has a unique solution long term for dealing with crime i'll discuss and we'll discuss by the way if you 
were thinking that, gee, the stock market has got to stop its plunge at some point in time. Sorry, uh, another bad day today. There's just absolutely no good economic news out there uh, because I, I think investors and the, the market just is convinced that inflation is just continuing to run out of control. Uh, the Dow Jones Industrial today down 374 points. But let me give you a perspective because if you're getting your 401k statement at the – you'll probably be getting it next week because this is the end of the third quarter – uh, be sitting down when you open it, because because here's the deal. Um, in just okay, the j- just year to year. So looking back, let let's take September 26th of this year compared to September 26th of last year. The Dow Jones Industrials 52 weeks ago, thirty six thousand nine hundred fifty two. Today. 29,215 and continuing to drop. So you've seen a drop of 7,000 plus points, um, almost closer to 8,000 than 7,000. And again, no end in sight. The amount of wealth that's just disappearing is staggering, just absolutely staggering. The NASDAQ, um, same sort of thing. It's down today, not as much, down 56. But uh, 52 weeks ago, the NASDAQ was at 16,212. Today, it's at 10,565, a drop of, well, in the neighborhood of al- almost 6,000 points, 5,800 points. Um, just bad, just bad, bad, bad. And just, again, I understand that there's some people who say, oh, you don't need to worry about this. But if you are in retirement— and you're living on your nest egg, and suddenly your nest egg has been reduced by 20 to 25 percent, it is worrisome. If you're getting closer to retirement and you're planning what your retirement's going to look like, and suddenly that nest egg is down 20 to 25 percent, and it will delay your retirement or change your perspective on retirement. So it is it is a big deal, and the problem is there appears to be no end in sight of this. All right. No question. Crime out of control. No question about it. Um, the In the city of Milwaukee, again, if you look at the Milwaukee police crime statistics numbers, 163 homicides thus far this year. And I think that's a lagging indicator. There were six or seven homicides over the weekend. So actually, I think that 163 is low. This time last year, when it was an all-time record, there was 137. So last year, all-time record. And this year, we're, uh, you know, do the math, like 26, 27 ahead of last year's all-time record. And again, I don't think that counts a number of the homicides that occurred over the weekend. But you've got crime absolutely out of control, no matter what indicator you want to have on it. And, you know, we talk a lot about after the crime is committed on this program, and, and I admit I'm, I'm a pro-law enforcement, pro-lock-em-up guy. I think, you know, once you have people that commit crimes, they need to be held accountable. And I think part of the reason that we have so many crimes that are being committed is because 
just for years and years and years, we have been reluctant to hold people accountable. You know, the juvenile justice system is, and I put that in quotation marks, it's kind of a joke. We're, we're not willing to lock up kids after they steal car after car after car. We're not willing to wave them into adult court until they do something so terrible that they have to. I mean, heck, there, there was a juvenile court judge, the guy that, that shot, what, five or six people, a 15-year-old at Mayfair, they, they didn't want to wave him into adult court. The state had to appeal that to get that judge's ruling overturned. So we, we haven't held people accountable. But I acknowledge that that's only part of the problem. Part of it is you hold people accountable, you teach them the consequences. The other factor, though, is why is it that we have so many people that are committing so many crimes? And, you know, whenever we discuss this, I get phone calls from people saying, well, it's, it's, the, it's the social media and it's this and that and, and the other thing. To which I, I say, well, I don't know, when I was 16 years old or 15 years old, it wouldn't have occurred to me to go out at 2 o'clock in the morning and steal cars. It just it, it wouldn't have. And if if I had been walking down the street of the neighborhood I grew up in in Glendale and I saw I saw a car sitting in the driveway being warmed up because it was cold and the door was unlocked. Even in that case, it wouldn't have occurred to me to jump in and take that car for a joyride. And my guess is that's that's how you find yourself as well. You wouldn't have done this regardless of what the opportunity was. You wouldn't have stolen that car. You wouldn't have committed that crime. And yet we have people who are willing to do this. Now, part of the reason why I think they're willing to do this is there is a certain degree of frustration that's out there. I think you have a certain segment of society who doesn't see any future for themselves. I mean, I don't know about you. I I was always motivated. I, I was blessed that I knew what I wanted to do when I was a kid. I always thought I wanted to be a lawyer, and so I always moved towards that. So, I mean, I I had distinct goals, and I I moved towards that. I know a lot of people don't have that, but for me, it was always stay in school. You need to get your education. You need to do as well as you can, and just kind of check off that list as you go through things. Part of what we have going on now is for many, many people, the educational system is just a complete and total bust. That's just the reality. The public school system and some public schools do well, but by and large, especially in urban areas, our solution has been to take money and just keep pouring it into the, the public school system, throwing money at a problem where money doesn't solve the, the problem. It, it just doesn't. By any objective measure, you see the educational quality deteriorating and deteriorating. And that's not a knock on teachers. It's not necessarily a knock on the educational bureaucracy. It's just a reflection of what we're doing doesn't work. And considering and continuing to do the same thing, okay, well, let's take it another, you know, $500 million and let's put it in the schools. Well, okay. And unless you spend it in a smart way, you're, you're not, you're, you're not going to make any difference because we've been putting millions of dollars into the schools and it hasn't been working. So into this trots Ron Johnson running for reelection and education, I think is a huge factor. So on Friday, one of the things that Senator Johnson says, he's held, he's holding a roundtable discussion on on education and and how do you how do you also combat crime beyond just the let, let's lock up the criminals which i think ron johnson supports and one of the things he says which has somehow become controversial he says my macro solution in other words big picture renewed faith stronger families more supportive communities and 
the blunt public policy prescription for me is school choice. And Johnson, of course, goes on to talk about how universal school choice would allow parents to receive taxpayer-paid-for vouchers to attend private schools and church-based schools without any income limits. And I think his idea is let's give the kids that want to, to succeed, let's give them an opportunity to get out of failing schools and get into schools where they have a greater chance to succeed. Because if you get kids into schools where they're actually learning something and learning how to read and write instead of just biding time so they can cut out and go steal cars, you've got a greater chance that they are not going to turn to crime. So he said, what we're doing now isn't working. I think on a bigger approach, we've got to look at universal school choice. Oh, the horrors, say some people. 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I think Senator Johnson is on to something because, like I say, what we're doing now doesn't work. And just throwing dollars at a broken system, and we can argue why the system's broken. And this is, like I said, it's not an attack on teachers, but it's just a reality that you've got a broken system. So maybe by doing something different, maybe we are able to give greater opportunities to a larger number of people and maybe actually defeat crime that way. 855-616-1620, we discuss. 855-616-1620, which is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Look, this is, and I understand this is going to be greeted with horror from some people. Well, don't you understand, Tony Evers, Tony Evers wants to put millions and millions of dollars more into schools, but, but that spending more and not spending smarter doesn't solve the problem. We have been spending tons of money on schools, and we've been seeing diminishing results and continuing to see failing schools. So, again, continuing to do the same thing over and over again, and being, what's the cliche, surprised that the results aren't different, that's the definition of insanity. So what Johnson is saying is, look, we've got to start giving some of these families a a ray of hope. And what we have to start doing is let's look at things like universal school choice. Jeff, school choice is basically competition. Name one business or service that competition has not made better. And the answer is, I I can't. Um, Jeff, my worry with Ron's plan is how do you prevent against the tipping limit. What I mean is what happens when you get too many bad eggs and what was a good school? Well, see, I don't think that that's going to be the case because, like I say, with school choice, what you have is you have certain standards. You have the parents that are involved. You have the parents that are looking for good alternatives. And again, it is that competition that's doing that. Jeff, I agree with him, but the type of criminals we hear about in Milwaukee aren't going to go to any school, no responsibility and no accountability. Well, in the short term, maybe, but big picture, if you've got better schools and you've got kids who are actually learning how to read and you've got kids who are learning how to write and do basic math and there is a degree of accountability that the schools are providing on them instead of just letting them run wild. And again, I don't mean this to sound like it's a it's a rip on the public school system, but let's face it, a, a lot of those schools <clears throat> are failing and you have a bureaucracy that is kind of entrenched and prevents, I think, some of the types of change that you need, and you have kids who are trapped in these different schools. To me, it it's competition, which is 
the key. And when you get that competition, maybe what ends up happening is at least not for everybody, but for some people, maybe it gives them the alternatives. It motivates them to say, you know, I, 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 I want to see a life beyond just going out and stealing cars when I'm 14 that's going to end up with me in jail when I'm 17. Yeah, I just sent out a tweet. If you follow me, it's at Jeff Wagner 620. Get ready for sticker shock when you open your third quarter IRA or 401k statements next week. As of today, year to year, the Dow is down a staggering 7,700 points, and the NASDAQ is down even more on a percentage basis. It is, in fact, ugly. Oh, and, and one of the, the other things, maybe we'll talk about this in more detail a little bit later on in the program. Um, the, the Biden administration has been touting Hey, there, there's look the last several weeks, you know, gasoline prices have have, have dropped. Now, look, I, I want to be real clear. I don't. I, I'm not going to be celebrating in the streets that gasoline goes from five dollars and nineteen cents a gallon to three dollars and seventy nine cents a gallon. Is it better at three seventy nine? Yes, but that is still, in my opinion, way, way, way artificially high, and it's nowhere near where gasoline was two years ago. But anyhow, that's been the argument. Hey, gasoline prices are going down. Isn't this great? Well, you, you better get it while you can. On Saturday morning, woke up, and we were we were driving out to the Pewaukee area to, to have lunch with my uh, my wife's family, and the the price of gasoline. Now, on Friday night, when I came home, there's a gasoline station kind of across the street from where I live. Gas was I want to say it was three forty nine a gallon. And I know you could find it cheaper, but it was like three forty nine a gallon, which I think was kind of representative of where stuff was. Saturday morning, gas had spiked to four dollars and seventeen cents per gallon. Four seventeen. So it had essentially gone up, I don't know, somewhere in the neighborhood of seventy cents overnight. Now, the good thing was, as we were driving out to Pewaukee to have again lunch with the family, I, I was looking for gas stations and that some of them apparently hadn't gotten like their newest shipments of gas. So I, I was able to fill up at $3.39 a gallon. And I admit, I, I felt like I was getting a bargain because I think pretty soon, you know, gas prices have just spiked all over. But for, you know, all the celebrating and the high-fiving that the Biden administration's been doing, well, gas has been coming down a little. Uh, sure, it didn't happen. And there's a variety of reasons for it. But you know, we're we're stuck with these high gasoline prices and we're stuck for a while. All right, here's the deal. Russia is losing the war in Ukraine. Russia and Vladimir Putin in particular thought that this was going to be a walkover. He thought that the Russian forces would be viewed as conquering heroes when they marched into Ukraine. And the truth is anything but that. So the the war started what, sometime like February, maybe early March. And instead of being this walkover for the Russian army, it is turned into a, a debacle. It, it's, a, it's a debacle. The humanitarian crisis that Russia has caused is just enormous. You, you have over a million people who become refugees. The, the country, the beautiful country of Ukraine, you've had major cities that have been completely and totally destroyed. But moreover, what's happened is the Russian offensive was— not only has it stalled, 
Now they're, they're in full retreat, and Ukraine forces are on the offensive, and Vladimir Putin is starting to look more and more desperate, which raises the issue of, you know, will he be trapped, and will he feel that he's got to use, like, limited nuclear weapons or, or whatever? So that's one of the concerns. The other concern he is finding is that he didn't have enough troops to continue to pursue this. So what Putin announced is they are going to start— a draft, and and they're starting to they're going to call up people who to to fight, and they announced what three hundred thousand people. Now, originally it was okay; these are just reservists, but it appears that there's a lot of people, just like the information you get in Russia, well, it might not exactly be accurate. So there's a lot of people who are apparently being called up who didn't know they were reservists, but they are being called up um, as, as part of this. So whether it's uh, an activation of the National Guard or conscription, like the draft, and they don't want to use that word, that, that's what's going on. So you have a lot of people who are suddenly being told, leave your wife, leave your spouse, leave your children, leave your job, and come fight for Mother Russia in Ukraine. And by the way, the winter's coming on. Hmm, how's that going to be? Well, to the surprise of no one, a lot of those people, uh, they don't want to go. So, you know, what, what do you do if you, you know, get called for the draft in Russia and you don't show up? Well, you know, you're looking at 10 years in a gulag in, you know, uh, Siberia. So people don't want to do that. So what is happening right now is you have Russians who are fleeing the country en masse because they don't want to be forced into the military service. And this isn't like this isn't like the U.S. in Vietnam where you had you know people who would head to Canada. That this is to give you an idea. The the line. I'm looking at a story in the New York Times. The line at the Georgia border, not the state of Georgia, but the country of Georgia, the line at Georgia's border with Russia is 2,000 cars long. Hundreds of vehicles are clogging highways to border crossings between Russia and neighboring countries following the announcement that Putin would be calling up troop. Some Russian men who once had thought that they were safe from the front lines in Ukraine have fled the country, and they have done so in a rush, lining up at borders and paying rising prices to catch flights to countries that allowed them to enter without visas. On Saturday afternoon, the line at the Russian border with Georgia was 2,000 cars, up from 50 before Mr. Putin announced the call-up, according to Russian data. The crossing point usually processes up to 2,000 cars a day, meaning people might have to wait at least 24 hours to cross the border. All right, so you've got this. You've got Russians that want to beat feet out of the country because they don't want to get called up in the draft, but they have to go somewhere. And, and this is the interesting issue. Story in the Wall Street Journal over the weekend. Poland, Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania, all countries that share land borders with Russia, have swiftly and collectively ruled out expanding their asylum categories to allow Russians freeing mobilization to enter their territories. And their argument is, look, we're not going to compromise our internal security by welcoming vast numbers of Russians who could potentially qualify 
Um, and the, the attitude from these countries are, look, you know, you're, you're this loyal Russian who supported your country's desire to go to war. And now that it's hitting home, because you might get some conscripted, now you want to flee the country. Sorry, we're not interested in taking you in. Our number is 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. How should the neighboring countries handle this? Well, on the one hand, you would think that you want to weaken Russia however you can. And if you've got thousands and thousands and thousands of draft-age men who suddenly are now fleeing the country so they're not going to be there to be drafted, you would think that that would be a good thing. At the same time, if these are otherwise loyal Putin-supporting Russians who are fleeing solely because now they don't want to go fight, you know, in the dead of winter, something that's completely and totally understandable, is that the type of person that you want to let cross over the borders? Does it provide internal security risks if you have people who are otherwise loyal to the Putin administration, except now that their, you know, butts might be on the line. 855-616-1620. Should these countries embrace them and let them in? What do you think? 855-616-1620. If you're just tuning in, okay, here's the deal. Vladimir Putin last week announces that he is going to essentially reinstitute the draft. They, they phrase it in a different way, but he's going to call up 300,000 Russians and send them to war in Ukraine in the middle of the Russian-Ukraine winter. Can you imagine what that is? And the reaction that a lot of these Russians are having is they're trying to get the heck out of Dodge. They're, they're fleeing the country en masse. The problem is they need to go somewhere, and most of the surrounding countries have said, look, we're, we're, we're not taking you. I mean, if the, the, the time, you know, the, the time to do this was when Russia was invading Ukraine and destroying Ukraine, we're not interested in it just because now it's your butt on the line. Now you decide that you want to flee and get out of here. Sorry, you're, and Ukraine says, no, we, we sh-. actually, the Ukrainian position is, no, if you get conscripted, then come over to Ukraine, surrender, and we'll take care of you. Well, obviously, some people are trying to get out with whatever they have in their families before this. All right, should these countries accept them? Right now, the general consensus is they want no part of fleeing Russians. 855-616-1620. Let's start with Mike in Illinois. Hi, Mike. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Jeff. How are you? Good. What do you think? I would like to see these countries accept them. Just because they were still in Russia during the war, obviously still going on, doesn't mean they supported Putin. You know, to compare it to Americans who were drafted to Vietnam and fled to Canada, they didn't necessarily, you know, support what was going on, but they certainly didn't want to fight. And I guess to me, this is even more so because I'm sure there's plenty of Russians who have family in Ukraine. And the specter of fighting against, I know it's not their own countrymen, but close enough, that might be too great. Um, so I don't think it's necessarily cowardice on all the people or other people that want to flee, but. You know, they don't want to fight against. No, I think it's. Uh, I don't think it's cowardice. I think it's self-interest. I mean, it's like okay, it's one thing if yeah. the war is an ab- abstract thing. It's another thing when you're suddenly told that you have to do that. Well, let me ask you this though: if 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 the way to bring about change, uh, let's use your Vietnam War example. One of the things that I think ultimately forced an end to the war in Vietnam was was the public protests and the fact that public opinion over time dramatically changed against the war. So I guess my question is, instead of allowing people to flee, if they don't have that option, won't they then be under pressure to stay and then, uh, again, bring back protests and try to force Putin out of office? 
Yeah, I, I think that's great. I think that um, protests are still pretty much squashed in Russia, right. even though you're seeing more and more of uh, discontent. Um, and obviously, you're right. That happened with the Vietnam War. Um, eventually, you know, public against it. But it take, I mean, um, America was obviously still a free country then, yeah. and protests were still allowed and happened in mass. It's yeah. still very much taken differently in Russia. And I mean, I hope it continues. And I did like the idea if they do get conscripted, okay, yeah, go surrender to Ukraine. Yeah, that's what Ukraine is saying. Yeah, no, th- thanks for calling. Me. I mean, that, that's what Ukraine is saying. No, we, and, and that, that's that's where the balancing is. Uh, and the other concern that a number of these countries have, Poland, for example, the prime minister there is is he's or president is is voicing this concern. He says, hey, the the part of the thing is the Ru- Russia has this habit of, of of sending in spies, and you know that's you know we don't know who. Who would be coming into this country if en masse we suddenly said, okay, you've got like 30 or 40,000 Russians who now want to pour across the border. We'll take you. You you really – just like when back in the you know Jimmy Carter eras, we had the Mariel boat lift where Castro cleared out in in okay, you want humanitarian stuff? Good. I mean, I'll, I'll let people leave Cuba, but I'm also going to clear out my prisons and I'm going to clear out my my uh, the hospitals I have for the mentally ill, and we're going to send everybody over. It, it's got the potential for the same sort of thing. And a lot of the, these other countries are said, hey, we're concerned that if we open this up, what we're going to see is we're, we're going to be getting Russian spies and all this in, which is why they don't want it. But I think the, the bigger point is if you keep the borders closed, what happens is you, you don't want to fight Good. We understand this. All right. Uh, maybe you need to start to have protest movements. Maybe it's time. And, and you're already starting to see that in Russia in a way that you never saw before. But if, if there's going if you're going to end the, if you're going to end the war in Ukraine, ultimately, I think it's got to come from pressure on Putin from within, which means. I, again, it's something that the Russian people aren't used to doing, but maybe, again, if, geez, you mean to tell me that at the age of 42, I'm now getting called up and I'm supposed to put on a, a t- learn, pick up a rifle and go travel to Ukraine in December or January or February and get shot at? I don't think so. 855-616-1620. Jeff, I think their military should start a coup and, ou- and oust Putin. Well, you know, one of the stories that's out there, you know, with Putin, who's like, doing the nuclear saber rattling. There's a couple stories out there that say that if he actually went to that extent, this is a very, very unpopular war in many, many parts of Russia, and that might be the thing that would precipitate um, some military action um, to, uh, again, maybe maybe oust him in one way, shape, or form. But this is a huge crisis, and it all goes back to, again, I think the way that Putin failed to understand what he was getting into and now just doesn't know how to get out of it. And like we often see with politicians, it's like, okay, you've dug yourself this hole, and instead of simply climbing out, filling the hole in and moving on, you continue to dig and dig and dig. Let's talk to Dennis. Dennis, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hello. Um, Steve, what I was talking to your associate with is, you know, when someone's discontent, when people are unhappy, you'll tell 60 people. If you're happy with service, maybe you'll tell five. So if you're discontented with this war, here's 300 people telling 60 people each, which is probably the best outcome of this war is discontent within the Soviet Union, Mm -hmm. because I don't see Putin giving up. 
he he couldn't stand to lose that much face. So I'll just hang up and, no, I, and no, listen. No, thanks. Well, I mean, I think that thanks. I mean, I think that that that's the element. I, I do think that there's there's in order to stop. I mean, this has been Putin's lifetime goal has been to try to reunite the, the former, you know, USSR. And, and that's, I believe, this is step one, that it was step one, and it's been met with a, like a resounding failure. But this is, I think, one of his big goals that's there. And I think the only way that he is going to be deterred from this is if finally there, there ends up being enough internal political pressure that, that's brought on him that says we, we've got to figure out a way to negotiate a settlement. And I, I don't know what that exit ramp is. I'm not smart enough <clears throat> to figure that out. Ukraine, which feels it is winning with the help of, of the West, I mean, they're, they're, they want all their, their land back. I, I don't know that that's going to happen or whatever. But if you look at everything that Putin's done, not just the, the loss of, of life, the, the the fact that this once unbeatable Russian army has been proven to be anything but that, and the fact that he has NATO is stronger now than ever. You have the West that remains united, and the Russian people start to suffer, and now you're starting to call up 300,000 of them. I mean, I, I think it's got to be internal pressure, and one way to ratchet that pressure up is, again, to say, we're not going to let people— just bail on this. You supported the war um, quietly or maybe publicly for all this time. And now that your butt's on the line, you want to head out. I I think these countries are actually doing the right thing because if there's going to be change, it's got to start internally. And so far, there's been no pressure for the Russian people to do that other than the trickle-down impact of the sanctions. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the show. Mike Spalding, did you have to come in yesterday and do severe weather coverage? I did not get to come in and do severe you weather You did not coverage. get to. <laughs> I, I will tell you, that storm just yeah. seemed to me came out of nowhere. Yesterday was my brother's birthday. Happy birthday, Scotty. And we had taken him out to, to dinner. And... We got to the restaurant a little bit early, and so I was I was sitting at the restaurant's bar watching the the Packers game, and they they kept doing all the cut ins with the the severe weather stuff that was coming on. And it just it's it seemed to me it came out of nowhere. I mean, I it and of course created just all sorts of devastation, thousands thousands of people without power and trees down and stuff like that. So we're still dealing with the aftermath of the last storm we got and our, right. our tree situation. Tree's gone. Garage is not repaired yet. And all I could see was the clouds like quickly moving in. And all I could think of was like, oh, gosh, I hope this gutter that's already bent off can handle whatever rain comes. It rained by us for eight, nine minutes. But, yeah, it seemed to move in quickly. This is like the second storm we've had that all of a sudden is appeared a lot worse than we thought it was going to be. Well, you know, it's a different perspective. I'm watching I'm watching what's going on in South Florida because in, in, in Florida because. It's it's one thing if you just just know people that are down there. It's another thing if you have property or whatever. And this 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 hurricane, you know, Ian lo- looks like it's the real thing, and it's you just don't know what the track is. I mean, everybody's going to get wet, but they think that this might be the first one in a long time that goes farther up the Gulf and, and might hit around Tampa Bay, which is which that that just almost never happens. Yeah, first time in a century the the National Weather Service said that it would be this size storm direct impact of the storm on Tampa. And yeah. it it's really 
it's really this odd sort of thing if you're sitting there saying, okay, well, I've got a place here, and, and you don't want it to hit anywhere, but it's like, okay, if it's going to hit, I, I just assume it, you know, go, yeah. you know, further north than, yeah, miss, you know, miss us a little miss bit. Naples, okay, <laughs> miss, miss, you know, but it, it's this weird sort of thing as, as you watch this, and it's just, um, it's, you know, when you know a lot of people that live in that area or have power, property yourself, it's just kind of like this whole different dynamic as you're watching like the storm track and things like that. Yeah, I have family in the Great Plains area, Kansas, Oklahoma, and tornadoes, yeah. and tornado alley all the time, all the time, windstorms and stuff like that. So yeah, I, I, it, it is kind of a nod feeling to be like, all right, well, it's not going to hit here, so we're good. Yeah, I, but at the same time, you know, I, yeah. I have a, a very dear friend, my friend Colleen, who has uh, has a, a place in um, uh, Alabama, Gulf. Gulf Shores, Alabama, and she wrote out the the hurricane there. She lives here, but she has she was down there. She wrote out the hurricane. You know, last year when they had it, I said, "You wrote out the hurricane. Get out of there!" But you know, she she wrote it out. I I I don't. I have no desire to fly to South Florida and ride out a hurricane. It's just kind of like, well, we'll whatever happens happens, and then you kind of deal with the aftermath. Is she from Wisconsin? No, here, no, she lives in West Bend. My friend Colleen. Yeah, but but she has. It's kind of like rental property that she yeah. uses and stuff like that. But it's no, she's been through two two hurricanes because that that area and the Florida plant Panhandle and it, and Alabama there they they get hit a lot. Southwest Florida typically, you know, typically that's not where they they land. And like I said, this one if it does track and make landfall up by Tampa, um, that's something that rarely ever happens. Yeah, so truly is, historic. Yeah, it's the it's the real deal, and everybody is watching it. All right. We will keep you updated on the weather. All right, this is sent out a. I sent out a tweet about this, and I, I whenever I do topics like this, I, I generally put them into the category of, don't California my Wisconsin or or my country. Now, California wants to be the the nationwide leader when it comes to trying to have a, a clean environment, right? Despite the fact that you know India and China in their effort to become industrialized. They're they're building coal plants as fast as they can. Okay, California's decided, well, even though, you know, this this global climate stuff, even though anything that we could do is really just going to be a drop in the bucket, we're going to do it anyways. So you've got this policy that they've announced where you're not going to be able to sell gasoline-powered vehicles, what, after 2035, and they're starting to decrease them. And, of course, the problem is, as as we highlighted um, when we discussed this before, the the infrastructure just does not exist to support this. I mean, they already have rolling brownouts when it gets hot because the electric infrastructure isn't there. So not only are California, uh, not only is California not going to allow new cars to be sold unless they're electric, many communities. Um, are also passing electric-only building mandates. And so what that means is that you will not be able to build a new home with a gas furnace. Alternatively, if you have a gas furnace in your home, you will not be able to replace that gas furnace. So if your gas furnace goes out, you're, you're going to have to switch over to like an electric heat pump or something. So you're, you're not going to be able to, to replace it. And the cost of this stuff is incredibly, incredibly high. All right, what are they going to do next? Stick around. I'll tell you in just a moment. 
Okay, so let's just talk about the, the, the electric cars for, for just a moment before we get to the, the new development out of California. California, of course, requiring people to go to electric vehicles. They are banning gasoline. Uh, they're banning natural gas furnaces, which means that you're going to have to use electric heat, electric heat pumps, etc. Now, I think a lot of people still don't understand how, how these electric vehicles work. And Washington Post makes the point that um, most drivers of electric vehicles charge their electric cars at home. And typically what they do is they do it at, at night. You know, you, you drive it during the day, you plug it in overnight. So when you wake up in the morning, you, you've got a fully charged car to go as far as it's going to, to go. They estimate that this is going to strain the net demand at peak times by about 25%. And the, the question is, where where is that infrastructure going to come from? Here's what the Washington uh, Post says. The first thing to know about electric vehicle charging is it's nothing like filling a car with gasoline. Charging an electric car takes time. The fastest chargers can charge an EV battery by 80% in 20 to 30 minutes. But most chargers are slower, taking somewhere between 2 and 22 hours to get a full charge. This means that around 80% of electric vehicle charging happens at the owner's home overnight when the driver doesn't need the car and can leave plenty of time for charging. But, but here's, here's the deal. Nights are a lot of time when homeowners are, are using electricity the most, between like 5 and 11. You come home from work, you turn the lights on, you watch TV, and you get on your computer, you do other stuff that sucks up power. So you've got all this electricity demand. And now on top of that, you're going to say, all right, we, we've got to have, we, we, you're going to be charging your cars at night. And also, by the way, those gas furnaces that are efficient and that you're not going to be able to use those. So later on in October, the, the people that drive this, the Air Resource Board, and in case you don't believe me, I just sent out a text about this. This is their latest proposal. They will be voting on passing a rule which will say that in California, starting in 2035 and then finalizing in 2040, so 13 years to you know 15 years, what the deal is going to be is there will be no, no gasoline-powered trucks that will be allowed to be sold in California. So all trucks, the, the big rigs, all trucks will have to be electric only. No new trucks will be allowed to be sold. And so, again, here, here's, here is the problem with that. If you think it takes a long time to charge you know, a car overnight, can you imagine what it takes to charge, again, a, a, a big rig? Often, the fastest big rig charging stations take three to four hours. Three to four hours. So you've, you've got truckers who are waiting for deliveries. They're going to take three to four hours to wait for their trucks to charge. They have fast chargers that are around, but those fast chargers, when you're charging a, a big rig, a semi, take immense levels of, of energy. And nobody's answering this question about, okay, how, how are we going to sustain this on, on the power grid? Long-haul diesel trucks can go about 1,000 miles before needing to fill up 
with gas, which takes 10 to 15 minutes. Electric models have a lot shorter range. And like I say, even the fastest available chargers are going to take three to four hours to, to get full. And that's a huge energy draw. Our number is 855-616-1620, which is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Is it practical, given where we are with the electric grid in this country, given the fact that to generate electricity, you, you, need, you need reliable things? I mean, you, you know, you, you, need, you need nuclear power to, to help generate electricity. You can generate electricity with coal, which is apparently something we're not supposed to use anymore. You can generate electricity with natural gas. But given the fact that all of these are supposedly bad, awful options, is it practical to say, okay, no trucks no diesel power trucks in the next decade or so? 855-616-1620. And I'm trying to imagine these truck drivers who have tight schedules and things like that, who right now can go 1,000 miles you know, on, on a full tank of, of diesel, and it takes, like I say, 15 minutes to refill the truck. I try to picture these truck drivers sitting around waiting for four hours while their vehicle charges. It's not going to get anywhere near close to that 1,000-mile uh, capacity. But even more importantly, it's going to present this huge drain on an electric grid that already we're telling people, you know, turn off your air conditioning and don't charge your electric vehicles because we can't sustain it. I mean, how practical is this? Can you have this war on gasoline-powered engines without – also figuring out where the power is going to come from. 855-616-1620, we discuss. Eight five five six one six one six twenty. Steve, good afternoon. You're on WTMJ. Hey, Jeff. How's it going? Good. What do you think? Well, okay. First of all, I want to correct one thing. Um, California's peak electricity use is hot summer afternoons for air conditioning. Um, it's not at night. Um, well, let, let me all. let me correct you. It, and, it might it, let me correct you because um, I'm looking at the story that addresses that in the Washington Post, and and that might be you might be talking about a, a peak time during an emergency thing, but a particular heat wave. But in general, and this is I'm I got the Washington Post story in front of me. Um, the largest demand for electricity happens in the evening between about 5 to 9 p.m. People come home from work, turn the lights on, watch TV, and do other activities that suck up panels. That, that's so... Right. Yeah, the, yeah the, the peak is the air conditioning load, hot summer afternoons in the evening. And they're lucky that the wind resource that they have carries far into the evening, uh, you know, much better than solar, obviously. Um, yeah, because so once the sun the wind, goes down, the solar's resource, gone. Now. Yeah, yeah, but the wind resource generally blows well into the evening for them during during the summer afternoons. But anyway, about trucks, um, you know, we got to get there someplace. Oil is going to be running out. Um, uh, there's just, you know, no no big elephant oil fields to find anymore. We're down to dogs and cats at this point. And so we got to get off of oil. Um, we spend a hundred billion dollars a year keeping the Strait of Hormuz open. You know, that's a direct subsidy to the oil companies. So we might as well subsidize, uh, you know, building uh, renewable energy resources and powering our trucks with them. 
Well, I guess, I mean, Steve, I, 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 I guess I, I, I guess I, dis- I disagree with you as well because, again, I, I'm, I'm pulling up the, the numbers here. The world oil reserves, um, the world has proven reserves equivalent to 46.6 times its annual consumption levels, which means at, at a minimum it, it has at least 47 years of, of oil left. Now, I, I've been the first to argue, and I, I think, you know, when you look at also some of the stuff, that, whether it's the drilling of other areas or um, fracking or things like that, I, I've, I, I think at some point in time what's going to happen is you were, you're absolutely correct that the amount of oil that's available is going to decrease to the point that the cost is going to go up so much that, you know, the, these other alternatives are, are going to, to make sense. But I'm a free market guy. And I, I guess what we're seeing here is this artificial government interference. And, and let's, let, let's understand, what California is doing isn't based on their concern that oil is running out. They just they don't like the internal combustion engine. And so this is all about trying to, again, affect climate change or stop climate change, which, well, as long as you've got India— that's um, doing what India is doing, as long as you've got China that are doing coal plants and stuff like that, anything that we're going to do in the United States is going to be a drop in the bucket, which doesn't necessarily mean you shouldn't do it if, if it is, in fact, practical. I'm just arguing that before you can say we're not going to sell uh, semis, you know, we're, we're not going to allow you to sell non-electronic trucks, you, you've got to have a way – of charging them, and you've got to explain where is where is it going to come from? Where is this power going to come from? I think there's a lot of people out there that just still have this image that you throw this switch on the wall and boom, the electricity is there. The electricity has to be generated by, by something, and historically it's been coal-powered plants. I'm not against nuclear plants. I, I mean, I think that's a, a relatively safe and I understand I, I saw the the money the movie the China syndrome but I think it's a relatively safe way of doing this I think natural gas continues to be remarkably clean but yet that's getting a bad name as well my only point is if we're going to wave this magic wand and say all right we're, we're now going to force everybody by government fiat to go to these electric vehicles you, you have to explain to me, where is it going to come from? And if the answer is, well, it's going to be solar power and wind power, my response is, with all due respect, you know, you, you need to kind of go into the real world because the, the sun in the winter in Wisconsin, for example, the, the sun doesn't shine long enough to generate enough solar power that's going to heat people's buildings, and the wind doesn't blow hard enough or long enough to guarantee that you're going to have a reliable source of energy, which means you got to figure out how you're going to do it. Is it going to be nuclear? Is it going to be natural gas? Is it going to be coal? Is it going to be a bunch of hamsters running on a treadmill trying to do that? How are you going to do it? And don't you have to have a plan to do that before— you simply say, okay, well, you know, we're not going to allow gasoline-powered, diesel-powered trucks, semis um, on the roads anymore. Just asking. (music) 
So very glad to have you with us. Well, the Brewers season is winding down. Nine games left. The Brewers trail the Philadelphia Phillies by one and a half games. I think the uh, it's actually more than that because the Phillies won the season, season, season series with the Brewers. So if they were to end up tied after 162 games, the, the Phillies would advance to the playoffs. But they've got nine games left. The there's good news and there's bad news. The bad news is that they have to I think they probably have to go eight and one. That that gets them to ninety wins. So and they've got the, the Cardinals and the Colorado Rockies and they've got the Arizona Diamondbacks coming up. So that that's a lot of wins. At the same time, the advantage is they play all their games at home. So playing at American Family Field is is a decided, I think, advantage. I've got tickets. I'm going to go to the Cardinals games tomorrow and then Wednesday night and maybe catch at least one more before the the season ends. So the games are at home. That is an advantage. But clearly they've got to overhaul Philadelphia with 10 games left and Philadelphia, uh, again, will have to lose some. So they they have that in front of them. The Good news, I guess, in addition to playing the games at home, is Philadelphia has finished its home series. So Philadelphia has all its remaining games on on the road. So they go to, I think, Chicago tomorrow. They're playing the Cubs. And then I think they play Washington. And Washington's not a great team. The Cubs aren't a great team. But Philadelphia has to travel. And I forget who it is that they wrap up the season against. But they're on the road. So the opportunity is clearly there for the Brewers to, I think, salvage something out of what has been, I think most of us would agree, has been a, a somewhat disappointing series. But it's it's always going to be fun, and it's coming down to it, and they're really at a point now where it's it's kind of like just win, baby. And for the longest while, the Brewers talked about, well, let's win series, and we got to win series. Well, they're, they're past the point of winning series. I think they, they pretty much have to win everything. Um, if they make 90, now, can you make the playoffs with less than 90 wins? Yeah, you, you can. But 90 wins, I think, pretty much assures them that they're going to get in there. They just have to win eight out of their remaining nine games. And they've got two big games against St. Louis coming up. But I say that all the games are big. I mean, they won three out of four in Cincinnati, but they, they lost to Cincinnati, which is arguably one of the two or three worst teams in baseball. And that 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 ends up hurting them that they couldn't win all four games. So I know you say you can't win them all, but the Brewers are kind of at a point where, because of stuff that's going on early in the year, you pretty much have to win them all. But from a fan perspective, we'll certainly be pulling for that. All right, you will remember a couple months ago there was the this soccer game. They, they had an exhibition soccer game at Lambeau Field between. Um, Bayern Munich, which is probably the best soccer team in Germany, and Manchester City, which is probably the pains me to say this because I'm a Liverpool fan, but Manchester City is probably the the best soccer team in in England. And they had, if you remember, they had the, this this big event that was there. I told the story about how this guy who apparently hangs out at a bar that I hang out at from time to time. He he was a streaker at the place. You know, he decided that it was going to be a good idea, alcohol fuel to jump on the field and, and run naked across the field, which if if I were to give you any free legal advice from a recovering lawyer, it would be, eh, hold my beer and watch this, and then jumping onto the field and running naked, not, not a good idea. But one of the things that happened is there was a big thunderstorm that that moved through. So there was a delay in the game. 
and they were, were doing things to try to like the, entertain the the crowd while they were figuring out you know what you do in the rainstorm. And you might remember that um, A.J. Dillon, who is one of the two Packers' two great running backs, he was in the stands. He came down um, onto the field. This is A.J. Dillon, and appeared to be, you know, in the process, he's greeting fans, and, you know, they're trying to pass the time, and then he's going to do like a Lambo leap in into the, the stands. Again, it's part of this entertainment. And you've got a lot of the ushers that are encouraging to do that and things like that. And he's just getting ready to do this when apparently a police officer who doesn't know that he's A.J. Dillon comes up, grabs him by the back of his collar, and pushes him. Uh, Fans are seeing what's going on, and all the fans recognize that this is A.J. Dillon, and then A.J. Dillon, he he stops, and he appears to offer an explanation, in other words, saying, hey, I'm I'm A.J. Dillon with the Packers. I'm going to do this Lambeau leap here. And the tip-off would be that you've got all these ushers and stuff that are standing around embracing this as opposed to trying to grab him like you would the streaker earlier on. So the officer pushes him, but then allows him to jump into the, the stance. Well, there were complaints. For, now, Dylan handled this in a really, really classy way. Dylan was not screaming, you know, police brutality or anything like that. Dylan said, hey, this was just a misunderstanding. I, I accept, you know, what happened here. No hard feelings. But what happened is after that, there was you know, an investigation that the police department did. And Last Friday, the Green Bay Police Department issued an apology for what had had happened and said that there were two violations of Green Bay Police Department policy that the officer had had been involved with and responsible for. They didn't specifically list what they, they were. But And they said, well, we're not going to go into details, but we have taken corrective action. The statement then went on to say, I apologize to Mr. Dillon for the way he was treated. We appreciate the strong relationship we have with the Packers organization, and the Green Bay Police Department remains committed to working with them along with the entire Green Bay community to provide the best and most professional police service possible. The Packers issued a statement saying, we respect the process, we appreciate them looking at this, and, you know, we respect the conclusions. Our number is 855-616-1620, which is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Now, it doesn't sound to me like the officer has been fired, nor do I believe the officer needs to be fired. It doesn't sound to me like the officer has been suspended for any length of time, And I don't think the officer needs to be suspended for any length of time. To me, this entire incident just strikes me as what they're describing it, a kind of a a misunderstanding. You've got this police officer who's on the field who's trying to maintain crowd control. You've had a couple yo-yos who've run onto the field and were streaking. I, again, how do you not recognize the Green Bay Packer player? But but he's he's doing crowd. He's the cops are doing crowd control. You see this guy come down from the stands and and get on the field. He doesn't have a pass or anything like that. And perhaps the officer was a little bit overly aggressive in dealing with this. But at the same time, their their job is to keep unauthorized people off of the field. I guess the bottom line for me is 
I think everybody handled this appropriately. I think A.J. Dillon handled it appropriately by not flying off the handle and saying, look, I, I understand that this was a misunderstanding. I think the Green Bay Police Department handled it appropriately by saying, all right, we're going to do an investigation of this. And we found that the police officer didn't completely follow our standards. It's not like he took out a, a billy club and started you know, attacking the player. He grabbed him and he pushed him and he probably should not have done that. It doesn't strike me that the officer needs to be fired or subjected to a lots of discipline. Just probably, hey, don't do this again. You didn't handle it the right way. But in any event, I think everybody handled this exactly correctly. Not overreacting, not underreacting. 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage talk and text line. Everybody seems satisfied. And I think this is the way these investigations should come out. I sympathize with the player. I also sympathize to an extent with the police officer who, for whatever reasons, didn't recognize that it was A.J. Dillon and thought, I've got this guy that's on the field. I got to get him off the field. 855-616-1620. What do you think? So the, the A.J. Dillon incident has now pretty much been resolved as we were kind of reviewing the bidding. That big soccer game last late last summer, there, there's a delay. The fans are, you know, doing the wave and all sorts of stuff. A.J. Dillon comes out of the stands, goes onto the field waving at fans, and he's getting ready to do a Lambeau leap. Police officer comes up to him, grabs him, pushes him, like, get out of, get off the field. Obviously doesn't know he's a, a Packer. Now, it's, he's not wearing, you know, Packer gear. He's not wearing a pass that gets him on the field. Then somebody explains to the police officer, hey, this is A.J. Dillon. They let him go, um, go ahead and, and do the, the Lambeau leap. Uh, A.J. Dillon says, look, I, I'm cool with this. I mean, I, it was a misunderstanding. I don't have a problem. The police department investigates. They say, well, we think that there were two breaches of uh, of protocol. We think the officer did two things wrong. They don't identify what it is, but it's probably like the, the pushing him and, and the grabbing him without doing a thorough enough investigation. They say they've taken corrective action. doesn't sound like, I'm sure he wasn't fired. It doesn't sound like he was suspended. It's probably, again, Look, this is we. You got to do better, and it, it appears to be the end of it. Dylan accepts it. The Packers accept it. The Green Bay Police Department accepts it. Here's some of our text, which shows that some people do and some people don't. How misunderstood? This is how misunderstandings used to be resolved without the "Don't you know who I am?" that we are so used to. Both, uh, a, a, you know, AJ, a very, very classy guy, and oh, together with um, his partner in the backfield, it's the classiest backfield duo on and off the NF, on and off in the NFL. All right, then I got another text. The racist cop should be fired. Okay, the racist cop should be fired. Now, there's no, you know, th- this is unfortunately what police officers have to deal with from time to time. There's no evidence at all that the police officer was racist. The, uh, the evidence is that the police officer who's on the field all of a sudden sees somebody who does not have a pass, who maybe he should have recognized that this guy's a Green Bay Packer or whatever, but the guy doesn't have the appropriate pass, and now he, he's on the field. They had streakers on the field. You're not supposed to be on the field without a pass. Now, I understand there, there's asterisks and there are exceptions, but this idea that we have people who say, well, he's got to be a racist cop. Give me a break. Where's the evidence of that? Jeff, I'm sick of second-guessing and condemning the police at every turn. 
everyone should have been able to laugh at this, and I see no reason for an apology. Jeff, this will work out largely because of the reasonable reaction of A.J. Dillon, who is very smart and personable young man. Well, I think there's an element of that. Jeff, it's nice to hear when cooler heads prevail. I think everyone handled it correctly. Um, but, uh, yeah, so you've got that. Um, 855-616-1620. Jeff, this was a simple mistake, and all parties are best served by letting it go. And that that's how I thought of at the time. Jeff, this is a non-story. The police department has apologized for not recognizing age not recognizing him. AJ Dillon was very professional about it. I'm a huge football fan and I honestly could only maybe recognize three or four people with their helmet off. Otherwise, it looks just like any other person trying to jump into the stands. Jeff, I think this was a simple mistake. All parties are best served by letting it go. Yeah, I think, I think that that's the, the case as well. It's cooler heads prevailing, and, you know, it's just this is how we should handle these particular situations. And, again, I think most people believe that, and that's how most people, um, you know, think that this should happen. But, I mean, I understand there's some people who are going to want to play the race card or— you know, whatever. But this is a situation where the Packers organization says, hey, we've got a good relationship with the police. We think everybody handled this. It was kind of a mistake. Let's move on, which is precisely the way things like this should be resolved instead of everybody digging in their heels and refusing to acknowledge that, okay, well, maybe, you know, maybe this wasn't the best way to handle something like this. But at the end of the day, it's no harm. It's no foul. And let's move on. You know, it, 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 it's a cliche where we say, you know, wh- where are the parents? But it's also true. I, there's story after story after story where you say, where are the parents? And, and, and maybe it's this whole deal where it's not just enough to hold the, the kids accountable for what they do, but you got to find a way of maybe holding the parents accountable as well. Here, here's the latest story. And, and, and we could do these stories three hours a day, Monday through Friday. We, and again, I'm talking about these, these juveniles who are driving stolen cars and involving police chases. Okay, now think back to, to last night. Think back. 8.40 last night. Now, I happen to know. My nephew is 15. I, I happen to know, you know, where he was at least a little bit before 8.40 because, like I say, it was my brother's birthday, and we took, you know, him and my brother out, out, to, out to dinner. So he was, you know, with his dad. So we, we know where, where he was. Well, here's the flip side of that. A 15-year-old boy taken into custody Sunday night following a police pursuit and crash in Glendale. The pursuit began around 8.40 p.m. on Silver Spring Drive after police spotted an Acura stolen out of the city of Milwaukee. The police start to follow. What happens nowadays? Well, of course, everybody runs. This is a 15-year-old kid driving a stolen car whose reaction is to run from the cops. The Acura fled southbound on I-43 from West Silver Spring. The officers terminated the pursuit in the area of I-43 and West Capitol Drive. Now, as somebody who drives that stretch every day, sometimes a couple times, that, that's under heavy construction. And so what's happening is the lanes turn and stuff. So you've got this this kid who turns out to be 15, driving the stolen car, flees like a bat out of you-know-what, running from the cops, and the police decide they can't safely engage in the chase, which tells you how fast the stolen car might have been going. While checking the area, 
Officers found the Acura crashed and abandoned near 8th and Atkinson. So this wasn't the the chase leading to the crash. It was the 15-year-old who apparently, thankfully, crashed the car without hitting and killing somebody else, which is how these stories often end. A 15-year-old male from Milwaukee was taken into custody for operating a motor vehicle without an owner's consent and fleeing an officer. The 15-year-old male was taken to the Milwaukee County Children's Center. No injuries reported. Well, here, here's the deal. First of all, for the punk kid, he, he deserves to be behind bars or in some sort of controlled facility. My guess isn't this, is that this isn't his first time at the rodeo, but I don't care. You're driving a stolen car. You lead the cops on a high-speed chase. You pull away. You crash the car. You need something more than just don't do it again. We'll send you back to mom and dad. You, you need some degree of confinement. And I don't care if it's his fifth time or his 50th time or his first time. We've got to get serious about this. Secondly, where are mom and dad? You know, why don't they know where their no-good kid is at 9 o'clock at night driving this stolen car and leading the cops on a high-speed chase? And and maybe there's ways that they should have to be held liable as well. Because what did Hillary Clinton say? It, it takes a village? Well, it starts with it takes a family to raise a kid, and you have story after story where the families are doing lousy jobs of that. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the show. Well, it's kind of winding down. Melissa Barkley, this is... I remember sometime in late July of 1998, walking into... WTMJ, this studio, for the first time. Now, we, we've redone the studio somewhere about 15 years ago, so it's not—it's it, always been where I'm sitting, but it, it had a slightly different sort of configuration. But um, th- this is it. This 50, is it. 50-some minutes, that's it. And then your last show from here coming up this afternoon. Yeah, it just seems unreal. And just walking down the hallway and not seeing anything on the walls, we got to be out of here. And it's, you know, yeah, I mean, it, you you do, you're, you're thinking about the future, but you're also reflecting on the past as you leave. Well, it's funny. I ran into, as I was kind of walking around, I, I ran into Steve Wexler, our boss, mm-hmm. our general manager, vice president. And, and, and Steve has been here longer than I am, but I, I think I have more continuous service. That is, I mean, Steve started out here He's told the story about yep. like as an intern and then and stuff. And then he went away on the management track. So we, we both, I know, have this connection. And it's funny. I, I've said this on the radio. I, I know some people are talking about events and they're thinking about this or that or the other. For me, that's it's a building. For me, it's uh-huh. so I, I remember where different people sat and, and and all the different outstanding people, the, the on-air people that yes. that that people know, but but more importantly, that the people behind the scenes that let us do our, our jobs. I mean, you walk in the sales department, and I just think of all the the people that were on the sales staff that have come and go gone on the years, and a couple of whom have just who've passed away. And I think of okay, this this is where these are all the different program directors we we've had over the years yeah, that, yeah, that have yeah. sat there mm-hmm. and and all that. But it, it's just it it's the people. That really, I would agree. You kind I of would agree. I mean, with. the newsroom is always such a—it's um, a unique.
Greek ecosystem, which I absolutely love. And there's always a dark humor in there that I enjoy a little bit working in the news business. But um, yeah, you're right. It is the people that you work with throughout the years, I think, more than more than the building itself. Yeah. I'm, and I've made a point of, of going across to our, you know, I mean, for years and years, for people who, who just still don't quite understand the, the, the dynamics of this, Back in the day, back, for example, when I started, the, the, we were owned by a company called Journal Communications, and they had the newspaper, and they had radio stations, not just us and not just our sister station, WKTI, but radio stations all over the country, and TV stations, not just WTMJ Channel 4, but TV stations all, all over the country. And what happened is, ultimately, Journal Communications, a decision was made to break up the company, and so the newspaper was sold off to Gannett, who owns it now. The radio stations and the TV stations were purchased by Scripps, which is a big TV company, and Scripps owned us for owned us being the radio station for about four, three or four years. Mm-hmm. And then ultimately all the radio stations were, were sold off to different buyers and we were purchased by Good Karma. So we've been renting the space here. So um, it's it's been this kind of interesting relationship because even though we share call letters with WTMJ, we do not share a corporate identity anymore. It has been interesting because you'll see people in the hallway. We still kind of feel like family because we do have the same call letters and people come in here. They're on the air. You know, we oh, go sure. over there. It's it's except, you know, except corporate wise, we're not connected. But, you know. The people are still family. I, I just, you know, there was a period of time for about six or seven years, I used to do TV on a daily basis. And I can, I mean, what yeah. would happen is my, it was it was the news at three. And so my show would end at like 2.55 mm-hmm. or whatever. And I'd run run off and put my tie on and stuff and run to the set and jump on the set and stuff. And it was it, it was that, that great synergy that, that ended up it's happening and stuff. Mm-hmm. And, and now it's it's going to be different. So you had your tour of our new facility this, this afternoon mm-hmm. or early this morning, mm-hmm. later this morning. Yep. And you thought? I thought, oh, it smells, um, it smells all brand new. That was the first, like, hmm, this smells all new. So yeah, that was the first impression. And it's very clean. It's very, you know, there is an excitement because it is very new. And we've, you know, we've lived in this space for so long. So yeah, it's going to be great. Um, you don't have to get all the kind of weeds out of the way as we begin well, right, the our con- new the construction sh- process. The construction is still yeah. going on. It this is. is and it, it's and everybody was working really uh, and and I think it's going to be an ongoing process with that. I, I still I remember I, I was sitting where I'm going to be sitting down there and mm-hmm. I you know and there, there's it's it's different console and the way you bring phone callers up is a little bit different stuff but I I, I they, they were trying to give me all this information I said look here here's the deal. Okay, show me the off on button. <laughs> yeah, off on button. Show me the button I talked to my producer. Show me the button I hit to, you know, play the commercials. Headphone volume. Right, I'm good. Right. Cuz <laughs> cuz as I, I frequently say we sit in front of this, this giant board and when we bring tour groups in everybody will go, oh, that looks really cool, and they think you know something. And the truth is, for me, three, maybe four buttons, five in the case of an emergency. Otherwise, I just... I don't touch any of the I things. have to say, it does look impressive. When you look, um, if you're just an average person looking at the board that we have in front of us, like, whoa, it's like you're flying an airplane. It's got so yeah. many gadgets and buttons. But Three or four buttons, five four in the case of an emergency, which yeah. is that. So you're looking forward to the move. We start I, um, there tomorrow. Yeah, it's going to be, it's going to be nice. It's going to be nice. Yeah. So, and if we do this like we plan to do this, nobody other than us making reference to this, nobody will know the difference. That's right. We want this to be a seamless sort of transition. But it is a little bit. I, 
Are you feeling kind of sad a little bit? That's not the right word. No. I I don't, I, I, maybe a tad melancholy. I was going to say melancholy. Yeah, it's Mm -hmm. not sad. I mean, it's, it's. Reflective. Yeah, a little bit, Mm -hmm. you know, because you can't work in one place. I mean, I look, I understand people change jobs and companies move and things Mm -hmm. like that. Although this is a facility that I think has a connection to. That one of the blessings in my life, and I say that sincerely, is for the last 20-whatever years, I've been able to make a living um, working at a radio station that I grew up listening to. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it is and, – and you talk to people, and I, I still run into people who remember – coming on tours of this building when they were kids on a field trip. Oh, our fifth grade class came there. Or some people who, the might, longevity be a little, that right, who might be a little bit older than me who will remember these stories about, yeah, I'd come here when they did this or that or the other. So it, it's it's a place that, that has a connection to the community, just like WTMJ Radio has a connection to the community. And I, I always think of the very, very talented people, the, just just the on-air people, not to mention the, the people behind the scenes, but the, the talented on-air people that sat here, the, the Jack Bakers and the Gordon Hinckley's and the Rob Edwards and John Green's and Charlie Sykes. And it just it just goes on and on that I've had a pleasure of working with over the years. Yeah, it's, you know? it's, really, it's really fabulous because as we move, like you said, tomorrow morning, people are going to tune on WTMJ and they will never know that we we moved hopefully if, right if we do this You'll correctly still be hearing our voices right yes. if we do it correctly and the only <laughs> thing I have to do is just time it out mm-hmm. right with my commute so you know that it's because it's a longer commute but it's shorter commute for you no it's a longer no? commute for me I oh, live right, in, right, I live right, in short I live right, a mile right. away from the station yeah, never mind no stupid right <laughs> yeah, stupid no, on my no, part no. right that's yeah. right yeah it'll be eh, like 10 15 minutes that's not a long commute. That's not a commute. No, no it's that, not that, really. That's barely enough time to like exactly. listen to much of the radio. <laughs> Melissa Barkley, it is always oh, a pleasure, and we will see you downtown you. at our new digs um, starting tomorrow. We'll see you tomorrow. All right, back with more in just a moment. It's one of the most popular things in the country. Why? I'll explain. We'll discuss. Couple of listeners saying, "Are you still going to be WTMJ?" And the answer is absolutely. The call letters don't change. The frequency doesn't change. The only thing that changes is starting tomorrow. Our where where the broadcasts originate from change a little bit, and and I, I think it's uh, it's 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 going to be different. It's going to be exciting. And like I said, I had a chance to see the, the whole offices personally for the first time today, and it was it's it's going to be interesting. And it's it's clean. It's modern. And, you know, it's just uh, turning the page. Okay, speaking of turning the page, when I was a kid, baseball was America's pastime. And somewhere along the way, it got baseball, got got passed by maybe some would say baseball, but basketball, but certainly it got passed by, by football. The... In an era where there's all these different choices of things to watch on television, for example, uh, and because there's just so many different choices. There's broadcast TV. There's streaming services. There's cable TV, etc. So what you have is you have ratings that just, you know, it, it for the longest time, matter of fact, it, it still might be the most watched episode ever, the, the final episode of MASH. But th- that's never going to be topped. 
in like serial in a, in, in a scripted TV show because there just weren't all these different options. So it, you only had three or four options. So everybody watched the final episode of MASH. Now it's just there's people that watch Ted Lasso, but you need Apple, uh, you know, Apple TV for that. Or there's people that watch Succession, but you need HBO for that. It, it's all these different things. So the viewership is really scattered, except when it comes to football. All right, so the football season we know is now you know three weeks old. Uh, the league, week one, an average of 18.5 million people watched week one's game. Amazon gathered um, for their opening Thursday night football stream, you know, the, the Amazon Prime that's now like Thursday night football, they they got 13 million viewers, 13 million viewers who streamed it. It wasn't like you could just turn on the television, put on channel 4, 6, 12, whatever. No, you, you had to actually, you know, you had to have the streaming service on and you had to be able to stream it. Football has become the dominant thing that people watch on, on television. And that's why, I mean, networks and tech giants like these streaming services are paying the NFL a combined $113 billion. I did not misspeak. I didn't say $113 million. I said $113 billion through 2033 for the right to broadcast and stream live games. So over the next 10 years, the streaming services and the networks are paying the NFL $113 billion dollars. To, for the rights to carry the games. And that dwarfs the, the amount of revenue that's being generated by pretty much anything else. And I'm not saying that, you know, golf isn't followed, and I'm not saying that baseball is not followed, and I'm not saying that uh, you, you've got, you know, the other tennis isn't followed, and I'm not saying that basketball isn't followed, but $113 billion to watch games. Our number is 855-616-1620, which is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I have a why question. Why is it that of all the different sports that are out there, and we all have our favorite sports, there's, there's no question, why is it that, that football has become, at least in the United States, the dominant sport when it comes to people wanting to watch on TV as measured by the number of people that watch the games and also as measured by the, the rights fees that people are going to pay. Now, look, and I, I understand here in Wisconsin, you know, the Green Bay Packers are, are kind of a, a religion. I, I get it. I grew up here. So, I mean, I, I know that. But, but this isn't just a Wisconsin phenomenon. It's not a Green Bay phenomenon or a Milwaukee phenomenon. This is a national Phenomena, and arguably it's an international phenomena. So, what is it about football that has caught everybody's attention? 855 616 1620, we discuss in a moment. 855 616 1620, which is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. To, to give you some perspective, um, the, the Major League Baseball 
As a matter of fact, the other night I ran into Bud Selig at dinner, so we had a, we had a nice conversation. So Major League Baseball, um, the, the national TV deal, let's round up. It's about $2 billion a, a year. Now they also get like the local revenue deal. So let's let's call it $3 billion a year. You know, over a 10-year period, that's $30 billion. Maybe Maybe that's a little bit low, but let, let's, let's use that to give you a perspective. Next 10 years, the NFL is going to get 113 B as in billion dollars. It's just it, it's staggering how how popular football has become. And that's that's not diminishing any of the other sports. Jeff, the NFL has done a better job of marketing their sport. Having only 17 regular season games has made each game more of an event. Jeff, um, football teams play once a week, and therefore it's an event, whereas baseball, hockey, basketball are played several times a week and don't have that same must-see appeal as football. Plus, it's more of a communal thing that can be watched and enjoyed with families and friends, with food and drinks. The others, not as much. That's interesting. That's kind of the recurring theme here. Relative to other major sports, football plays far fewer games per season, makes every game more important, therefore the higher TV ratings. Jeff, I love football. It's exciting. It's violent. Um, Well, there, there, there is that. Um, Jeff, football has become more of America's pastime than baseball. Um, this it's many more fans than basketball and baseball. Well, I think, you know, I mean, it's, you're talking to somebody who loves baseball in particular, but I understand. Jeff, people love the entertainment of football. Baseball is too slow for most. Well, I think that's a fair thing. NFL has cool commercials, fun dances and celebrities. Also, they've got cheerleaders. It is entertaining. Jeff, football moves faster. There's action. Baseball and tennis are slow. Well, that's a point I've been making about uh, baseball for a long time. Jeff, football is a game made for TV TV viewing. It's easy to see the action. Like, for example, hockey is difficult to view, along with the game is simple to understand. I don't know if you've ever tried to explain pass interference to somebody. I'm not sure that they'd say the game is that easy to understand. Let's talk to Julio in Milwaukee. Julio, good afternoon. Uh, hello, yes. Uh, Hi. Go well, ahead. I think uh, football. I think football is more uh, more of a more of a fans uh, game due to the fact of uh, the NFL. The way the way they uh, have their uh, salary cap balance, so fans are more optimistic about their teams reaching yep. the playoffs. Whereas uh, whereas the MLB, yep. the way it's set up, either you're in a big market and you're more hopeful being in a mar- uh, big market uh, brewers that's why i don't feel so hopeful every year due to the way uh mlb's uh, salary cap is set up so football is more of a even including me i'm hispanic so i love football yeah i mean yeah no i get it no. Uh, several factors to me no no thanks no i think you're i mean i think you you actually are right one of the things is w- w- football has figured out the 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 whole combat, competitive balance thing. And look, and I understand that there's some teams that have been really good for a long period of time. That's like the Green Bay Packers with Aaron Rodgers. And there's other teams that have just sucked for a long period of time, like the Detroit Lions. But but 
it is true, I think, that you know, you'll have teams that with a couple smart draft picks or whatever, because there's more of a competitive balance when it comes to money and things like that, a lot of times you go into a season and, and you say, okay, our, our team – you know, we, we legitimately have a chance to do well this year, whereas, you know, it seems in baseball that there's a lot of teams that are just rebuilding constantly. Basketball, a lot of teams that are rebuilding constantly as well. Tell you what, we're going to continue this conversation for one more segment. 855-616-1620. All right, the, the numbers don't lie. Um, whether it's number of people that are watching football, and I'm not just talking about Packers fans. I'm talking about people across the country, across the world, whether it's people that are watching football or um, entities, whether it's broadcast networks or streaming services that put their money where their mouth is. There, there's no question. The NFL is the, the dominant the, the dominant driver of ratings, of revenue, and we're discussing why, why it is that football is, and I'm not suggesting that other sports aren't popular, don't get me wrong, but why it is that football is kind of the big dog when it comes to that. Art downtown. Art, you're on WTMJ. Hey, Jeff. Hi, Art. Uh, one, of the big, uh, fact, one of the big factors in this is the impact of gambling in professional football You've got um, DraftKings, FanDuel. These are major sponsors now within the NFL, and they are driving the numbers through the roof, really. It's only going up with legalized gambling in many states now. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you, you factor in fantasy yep. football. And, I mean, so yeah. many people are playing fantasy football, including the female uh, audience yep. as well. And so you've got all kinds of people who on a Sunday afternoon – which is another great day. And every, everything that the callers and uh, uh, texters have, have said is, is absolutely right. But the, the impact of gambling has not been said yet, and it yep. is a real major factor in the NFL. Unfortunately for baseball, so many games, um, basketball, hockey, those are not as popular to gamble on as the NFL is, and I think that's a huge part of it. Yeah, now, you, you make a very good point, and I'm, I'm Glad somebody did because here, here's I've got I'm looking at a study from the American Gaming Association. They estimate that about 20 percent of U.S. adults, adults, men and women, to your point, play fantasy sports with the majority playing fantasy football. And, of course, that came before the, the gambling. But but you're right. People got into the fantasy sports thing and that was big. And what's the other estimate? They estimate a record 46.6 million Americans will bet on NFL games this season. 46 million people are going to bet on the games. That's staggering. Yeah, it's funny. You look at the NCAA, and there's always been the gambling aspect within college sports as well. And people would say, man, they shouldn't have that in college sports because the players, they don't get paid. They might be uh, they might be compelled to throw a game here and there. But I tell you what, the NCAA has never <laughs> gone away from the gambling because they know how important it is in driving revenue. You know, I, I will tell you, one of the things – that I'm, I'm still having a little bit of trouble getting used to is when I, I, I turn on a football game or something and you're hearing, okay, this is brought to you by DraftKings or, or whatever that is. Because I just remember for years and years and years, there, there was, I mean, there, there was this iron curtain. You know, we, we don't want to have gambling on professional football or baseball or whatever because it'll affect the integrity of the game. And now everybody's in bed with everybody else. It's just, I, I still, I'm having trouble when they say, oh, this is sponsored by, 
you know, this fantasy football league where people bet on, or or DraftKings where more people bet on this than in any other sports book. And I'm going, wow, sports book ads. You just don't hear that. I'm not used to hearing that. Even yeah. the pregame shows for the NFL, whether it's the NFL on CBS or whatever, they're having the the national analysts, whether it's Terry Bradshaw or Michael right. Strahan or whoever it may be, they'll talk about a prop bet, right? Yeah. That this is a prop bet you can play, and they they it's it's not uh, it's it's really obvious what they're doing, yeah. and you know. Um, and they really are drawing the fans in. Do you remember back in the day when Jimmy the Greek Snyder, who was like this professional gambler, he had a gig on, like, I think it was the NFL Today or whatever it was, but it was always very controversial because he'd be on there to kind of hint at, hint at, you know, what he was talking about when he was favorites. But but they didn't want him. It was very controversial. You don't, you don't come out and say the point spread is seven points or whatever. They they kind of danced around it. Now there's, there's no dancing around it. It's just like, who do you want? You want the underdog? You want the favorite? What do you want? to pick yeah good point no. well using jimmy using jimmy the greek as, as an example hey watch what you say on air because right. it could cost you your job right? yeah right no thanks yeah uh, jimmy the greek snyder who flamed at you know he flamed out in a in a big way by by making just some comments that you go hmm what, you know what what why did you think you should say that on tv um let's talk to joe in milwaukee joe you're on wtmj good afternoon Hey, how's it going? Good. So, basically, I think, you know, you mentioned numbers earlier, and this other caller mentioned number of games in a season. And if you look at the NFL, you know, 17 games a season compared to, what is it, 162 in baseball, 80-some in basketball. You know, you're invested in every game. Your team loses three, four games in a row. You're a little worried that, you know, with those other sports, you could go on a losing streak much longer than that and still come out positive at the end of the season. Yeah. Yep, yep, yep. So every game means a lot more, and it's a big event every game. Yeah. No, I think right. so. No, every I, single game is more significant yeah. because you only have 17 of them. Right. So true fans, they're invested in every single game. Right. No, thanks. To, and and I think even even casual fans are. Plus, it, it's easier when, when there's only 17 games. It's easier to... I don't know, pay attention to the season than it is with, you know, 162 games. I'm a huge baseball fan. Look, I, I, I listen to the Brewers games on the radio, and I score along at home, and I probably go to, well, I've got a 20-pack season ticket thing, and I'll probably go to another 10 beyond that. But it, it is, it's a different sort of commitment of, of time. Jeff, um, every NFL team has a chance, to your point, what we were talking about earlier, Jeff, every NFL team has a chance at the beginning of the year. Well, maybe not the Bears or the Lions or the Browns or maybe the Cowboys, but you know what I mean. The entire fan base has hope. I, I do think that's a challenge. And like I say, there's, in, in so many of the other sports, the teams, it seems like, have been in a rebuilding mode forever, whereas however they've done it with parity and revenue sharing and things like that, there's there, there's hope for the, the Green Bays. You know, you know what's what the Packers are going to – the challenge are going to face when Aaron Rodgers leaves. It's a whole different story. But at least – I mean, it's just amazing that a team out of Green Bay, Wisconsin, can be for the last 30 years – 
and I understand there's been a couple down years there, and I understand there's been more than a share of disappointing years that they didn't win the Super Bowl, but still, it's been a remarkably competitive team for years and years and years. Jeff, Major League Baseball will never again be America's pastime because there is no team payroll. At the beginning of the year, there are only a few teams out there that the fan base really think they have a chance to, you know, um, make the playoffs. Jeff, I think Sunday has a ritual. Who doesn't enjoy relaxing on the couch knowing they get to stay home on Sunday with a blanket and a bowl of chili? Or go to your kind of favorite watering hole, if that might be your case, and enjoy it. Jeff, to me, it's a shorter game season, one game per team per week. Each game means more, so the viewership is is of necessity. It's higher. Jeff, I think it's pace of play. Baseball is too slow. People get bored, and basketball is too fast to follow. Um, I don't know if basketball is too fast to follow, but I, I do, and I've talked about this regularly, and this is from my perspective as a baseball fan. I... The pace of play drives me crazy to the extent that you, I, I go to these games and you, you see game starts at 7.10. I was at the Yankees game on Friday night. I sent out a tweet a couple weeks ago, and it, it took them over two hours to play four innings. And, and the game starts at 7.10, it's 9.30, and you're only in the fourth or fifth inning, and there, there's people that are, are leaving, and they're taking their kids out because the kids, they're asleep, they're tired. It's You know, it's just... Baseball has this issue, I, I think, that they have to, you know, deal with. And, I, and I'm not to say that baseball isn't popular, but right now football is the thing. Jeff, the NFL markets their product better than baseball or basketball does. Um, yeah, I think that that's a factor. I think they do a very, very good job of, of marketing. Jeff, I think the predictability of football is another appeal. You always know exactly what time the games are going to be, you know, even if they're scheduled every day of, of the week. Yeah, I think there, there's a lot of that stuff that goes on. Bottom line is, if you think that football is popular, it, it really is. And I guess I was just struck by some of these numbers. And keep in mind, it wasn't always this way. I mean, back Back in, you know, the 50s and the 60s, even like during the Lombardi year and stuff, you know, TV and football were just starting to get their collective acts together. And now you have just an incredible, incredible giant. Every once in a while, as you're going through these crime stories and crime is just so out of control around here that to discuss these things with you, I, I really I have to be a little bit selective because otherwise you could spend three hours a day, you know, just talking about all the different types of crimes. I mean, six murders over the course of the the weekend, and more shootings than you can shake shake a stick at, and stolen cars and high speed chases involving fifteen year olds and things like that. And there's so you really have to kind of pick and choose. And every once in a while, there's a story where you just you you read it. And it's kind of like you, you got to sort of laugh, otherwise you end up crying. Here, here's one like this. This is from uh, Fox 6. Milwaukee car fire. Body with gunshot wound found inside vehicle. Firefighters were dispatched to a car fire near 15th and Congress in Milwaukee early Sunday, September 25th. So this would have been Saturday night, Sunday morning. Okay, firefighters dispatched to a car fire. After the fire was extinguished, firefighters located a body inside the vehicle. 
Hmm. The Milwaukee County Medical Examiner's Office responded to the scene. Milwaukee police confirmed for Fox 6 News the victim had a gunshot wound. All right. So you, all right, you, you've got clearly what happened is you had somebody who was executed in, in their car. And then in an effort to try to cover up the murder, they let the, someone else, presumably the murderer, lit the car on fire. So you got the car fire, and they find the body in it. So here, here's the way the story kind of wraps up. The cause of death remains under investigation. Officials say an autopsy should clear up questions surrounding the death. Okay. <laughs> I mean, it's a, let, let, me, let me kind of break this down. The victim has a gunshot wound. My guess is that is the cause of death. And then the victim, after being shot, is burned up in the car fire. So if he hadn't been shot, he'd nevertheless have died in the car fire. But, you know, we're, we're going to try to—the uh, cause of death remains under investigation. I've got a hint about this. I, I don't think you need extensive forensics. Gunshot wound, dead body, left in car, major car fire. I, I, I got a pretty good idea with all due respect, as to, you know, what was going on here. So, you know, you've got that. You've got the other story that just, again, it's one of the these tragic sort of stories coming from the weekend. 12-year-old boy um, unint- got his hands on a loaded gun f- Saturday afternoon, and it, it went off, striking him and killing him. One o'clock in the afternoon, 43rd and Good Hope Road in Milwaukee. So that's kind of by where like Triple-I golf courses and things like that. Boy taken to the hospital for treatment of his injuries. He died at the hospital. 33-year-old Milwaukee woman was arrested for leaving an unattended firearm. And then, of course, the police you know, remind people that if you're going to have a gun, you, you got to keep it out of, the rain, out of the reach of kids, which— Regardless of where you are on the whole Second Amendment issue, as more and more people, because of -of out-of-control crime, make the decision that they're going to carry firearms and get concealed carry permits and arm themselves, that's all well and good. But the first rule is, first of all, if you're going to have a firearm, it is an awesome responsibility. Rule number one is you have to know how to use it. Because I, I will tell you this, needing to use a firearm and not knowing how is the worst thing that can possibly happen. But secondly, if you are going to take the responsibility to have a firearm, you you have an obligation to make sure that that firearm is not accessible to kids, to people who might not otherwise know how to use it. It, it doesn't matter. That is your responsibility. And whether it's gun locks or whether it's a gun safe or whatever, it's not that hard. You can have, if you're afraid that, gee, I I need easy access to a firearm, well, okay, they're not that expensive. You get yourself a gun safe, you put the key by the side of the bed, or you use the fingerprint thing, you can get into that gun safe in a matter of seconds. There is no excuse for allowing firearms to be accessible to kids, period. There's no excuse. And these these different stories that you hear from time to time are absolutely unacceptable, and it's why there needs to be a degree of accountability. So I, I feel bad. I mean, I don't know what the relation the 33-year-old woman had to the, the, the child. I mean, I don't know if it's, you know, um, don't know if it's, you know, son and mother. And I understand it's a terrible sort of thing, but that doesn't mean that you can't or shouldn't be held responsible. If you make the decision to have a firearm, 
you've got to treat that responsibly, and that means you can't allow kids anywhere near those things because this is exactly the kind of stuff that happens. All right, that's pretty much a wrap for me from Radio City. 